Welcome to episode 69 of Now We're Talking. This is a podcast about communication skills, and my name is Rob Danish. I'm a professor of communication at the University of Waterloo. So in the last episode, we were talking about the importance and the power of the word we, and uh, and that's because we's going to construct a rhetoric of division and identification, and how those rhetorical practices of identification and division are so foundational in how we map the world and how we respond to the world. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about something equally as simple and equally as powerful uh, in terms of um, its ability to control or influence the course of conversations or the course of events. And this is something I've talked about before on several episodes of this podcast, but in today's, I just want to make the make it as simple and as clear as, as possible. And so today's episode has to do with the importance of thinking about emotions before reasons and thinking about the ways in which emotion always already biases reason and how and why master communicators have known that for 2,500 years. So let's start with um, Aristotle, who wrote a treatise on rhetoric 2,500 years ago. And uh, I still make my students read that treatise and we still talk about it in class and we just talked about it in class this last week. And in Aristotle's rhetoric, he says there are three kind of basic modes of persuasion. He calls them ethos, pathos, and logos. And I want to talk more about ethos in an upcoming episode. Um, Aristotle says that ethos controls persuasion. And uh, I'm not sure if he's totally right, but there's it's worth thinking through that. Uh, but he also says, um, he spends a lot of the rhetoric, that there's, in terms of the bulk of pages of the book, he spends a lot of it on the emotions, on anger, on shame, on fear, on calm, on all of these emotions. And he says that one of the central things that uh, a good rhetor, a good persuader is able to do is either amplify or diminish a specific emotion in an audience or change the emotion. And pathos is the form of rhetorical proof that Aristotle describes as putting the audience in the right frame of mind. And what Aristotle has in mind is the idea that if an audience is feeling something, let's say it's calm and you need them to act quickly, uh, you need to transform that calm into a into a kind of emotional state of agitation or urgency uh, or something that will motivate quick action, and calm doesn't do that. So Aristotle's point in the rhetoric is that if people aren't in the right frame of mind to begin with, it's unlikely that they'll be receptive to the arguments that you're making or the reasons you're giving for doing something. And in fact, the ancient rhetorical structure of many speeches puts an appeal to pathos before appeals to logos, and logos means reason or word. It's the it's the argument or it's the, the rational justification for the thing that you want to do or the, you're, the thing that you're trying to persuade your audience of. Um, so Aristotle and other ancient rhetoricians would put uh, these kind of narrative, and they were often narrative, narrative appeals to pathos before you make a rational argument because they thought people needed to be in the right frame of mind if they were going to hear the argument and if they were going to accept or uh, act on that argument. And it turns out that Aristotle was right. And he was right. And the, well, the way we know he's right is because modern or contemporary cognitive science has proven that he's right. And so in my classes, we often talk about the somatic marker hypothesis, Antonio Damasio's wonderful book, Descartes' Error, which I've talked about on this podcast before. 
And what Descartes' error tells us is that reason is always biased by emotion. Um, that's not news to a rhetorician or a, or a master of communication. Every master of communication knows already that reason is biased by emotion. So people's emotional predisposition toward a speaker or toward a subject matter or in a given context or at a given moment will influence the way they think or reason about the arguments that they're that they're making. Um, and so like, let's just unfortunately talk about Hillary Clinton for a second. Um, people had in Americans had very visceral emotional responses to Hillary Clinton, and they've had those visceral emotional responses for 25 years before the 2016 presidential election. She was a public figure from 1991 or 1992 on. Um, and in that public capacity, people had feelings about her. And some of those feelings were negative. Some of them were extremely positive. Um, I, I'm not making judgments about the quantity or, or the quality of those feelings. But because she was so well-known and had such strong uh, affective states associated with her, uh, her campaign, if it was going to be successful, needed to take on the rhetorical task of, in some cases, changing emotional states or emotional predispositions, amplifying some emotional predispositions and uh, diminishing some others. And that was the chief rhetorical work of the campaign. And guess what? The chief rhetorical work of the campaign had absolutely nothing to do with her policies or her proposals or her qualifications, etc. It was largely irrelevant to whether someone voted for her or not or didn't vote for her. Um, and what I'm saying is that in, in campaigns, um, the policy you're advocating for is basically irrelevant. Uh, right now, in la uh, right now, we have uh, ten, basically ten candidates for the presidency for the for the nomination for the Democratic Party for the next presidential election. And on CNN, you can turn on CNN and they'll debate the finer distinctions between Joe Biden's health care reform suggestions, Elizabeth Warren's, Bernie Sanders, uh, and all the other candidates. And it's so stupid. It's a waste of time. The, the minor policy distinctions between those candidates are irrelevant to whether a voter votes for that candidate or not. What's relevant is the emotional affective response or state that each person has toward the candidate, because that emotional reaction will bias their reasoning. So if for some reason uh, someone doesn't like Elizabeth Warren if they, they don't get a good feeling from her because they remind her of some scary aunt or something that they had years ago. Uh, if that's the affective sense they have in response to Elizabeth Warren, their reasoning about Elizabeth Warren's healthcare policy will be influenced and biased by that. So they'll find reasons to not like that healthcare policy. They'll invent a justification to reject it and to prefer Bernie Sanders. Now, of course, this question about... Um, about the way emotions bias reasoning can also lead to all sorts of interesting and complicated questions about how uh, other forms of unintentional bias or nonverbal priming or uh, what I call unconscious pre-reflective communicative interactions. So the ways in which uh, we produce effects on others before we've even thought about or spoken or interacted with some other person and how those can also bias or influence our reasoning. And they do, and good communicators know that. Uh, they know that there's all these ways in which um, in which people's reasoning is is biased. It's inevitable. 
Um, and so one of the reasons it's inevitable, and this is what good communicators know also, is that emotions are inevitable. You can't not have an emotion because you can't not have a physiological affective state. You cannot, your body cannot be in a perfectly neutral state. It's an impossibility. So you are always already experiencing emotion, an emotion or a set of emotions at any given moment in time. So a communicator is entering into a situation in which everybody in that situation is experiencing emotion. And they cannot, a good communicator cannot just ignore that fact. You cannot just pretend it's the case that those emotions don't exist. And you certainly can't pretend it's the case uh, or to pretend that they don't exist and then choose to, to construct a message that ignores uh, those emotions and attempts only to convince an audience on the rational grounds of something. So unfortunately, I have a student in my class right now whose father is an economist and I keep making fun of the economists, so that's not going well. But uh, economists, I think, are one of the, 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 the worst culprits of this and some of the worst communicators are economists because economists want to believe very deeply that if you just show the data on something, uh, that solves the problem and it'll convince someone of something. That economists want to believe that people are rational agents. And there's this thing called rational choice theory. It's total nonsense. I've never heard of anything stupider than rational choice theory. Uh, and rational choice theory is the idea that you can essentially eliminate your emotions, not have them, and then weigh the competing evidence to make a good decision. Uh, and in fact, economists sometimes believe that they, they base whole economic theories on rational choice uh, on the idea that if people just had enough evidence, they would make the right decision in their own economic interests which is total nonsense. It's not, it's not even a live possibility for a human being to weigh those factors without those factors being biased by their emotional predisposition or their emotional state or how their emotions condition their reaction in some situation. Um, there are other kind of culprits of this. Anytime you're around someone who insists on being right over and over again, they just tell you something and you're like, yeah, I don't really believe that. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. And then they go, uh, they mansplain something to you in all the ways in which it can that they're right. They have misunderstood and misread the situation because they're not paying attention to the emotional predisposition of the audience. And they think that if they just explain something well enough, that they'll convince the other person when that's not how persuasion happens. It's not how good effective communication happens. Good effective communication always starts with emotions first and always deals with the emotional state of the audience first, or at least doesn't eliminate or doesn't pretend that that emotional state doesn't exist or doesn't seek to communicate around it or in ignorance of it. Um, and like I was saying, the, uh, like I was saying in the last episode, I think this is even more true, the more concrete and the more local the circumstances are. So it, it, I confess it's very, very difficult for a presidential uh, candidate like Hillary Clinton to understand or to get at or to respond to the emotions of her audience because there's so much distance. She's just mostly on television and she can't understand that people watching on their television are having these emotional reactions to her. So she can't read them. It's really hard to respond to them. Um, Bill Clinton, ironically, uh, was sort of masterful at uh, making or, or the affective dimension of political campaigning at least. Um, he sort of figured out how to do that in the, with that kind of distance uh, between the audience already in place. Anyway, I, I think that 
uh, it's less important that we worry about political campaigns and more important that we work, worry about our most local uh, and concrete and specific circumstances. And in those local and concrete and specific circumstances, we have to recognize and be responsive to, as master communicators, whatever emotion ha or emotions happen to be circulating or um, guiding or, um, or kind of um, conditioning the interaction that you're having. So if you're in a meeting and you notice everyone is nervous, uh, or if you notice everyone's excited, or uh, if you notice everyone's depressed or down, a good communicator is reactive to that and tries to change or transform or amplify or diminish the emotional state of the audience before they start to reason with them. And I talk to my students all the time about this in terms of teaching. So I worry, you know, my students kind of often trundle into class, like slumped over, a little bit depressed looking, tired looking, etc. And I think most teachers in university settings, at least, uh, maybe not in elementary schools and high schools, but most teachers sort of look at that and, they, well, and think, well, who cares? I've had a lecture to do, so I'm going to do the lecture. And they pay no attention to the emotional state of their audience who's sitting there listening to listening to the lecture. Well, how does that lecture work out? <laughs> not well. The kids in the audience are probably not very receptive. They won't remember a lot, like some of them might. Um, and the, the professor in that case is putting the contents or what Aristotle will call logos, the reasons, the kind of theoretical or evidentiary claims that they're making ahead of the emotional needs of the students or the emotional predisposition of the students at least. And this leaves the students, of course, feeling distant from their professors, feeling disconnected from one another, et cetera, disaffected, whatever. Um, but if there's no communicative labor attending to their emotional state, then obviously they're gonna feel like that. Uh, and it's sort of insane to me that anyone would think that the message would then just be delivered and the student would just effortlessly learn the kind of logos or content of what's trying to be taught, even though they're having this emotional experience that's affecting their um, their kind of their abilities in the moment. Um, so master communicators can don't don't make that mistake. Essentially, they they think about and they think through and they think in response to the emotions that they've been given. Um, I learned uh, well. I mean, and I think this is even appropriate in professional settings, in meetings, etc. If you're in a meeting and you sense tensions rising, or you sense disagreement causing anxiety, um, or you sense frustration on part of some people in the meeting, if you sense anger, etc. You have to address those emotional states. If someone's frustrated and angry and upset, and you keep going in terms of your reasons for something, and choose to ignore the emotional state that you're, you're witnessing, then you've got a real problem. You're not going to succeed in whatever persuasive task you've put, you've set out and put in front of you. Um, and these emotional states can kind of harden and can make themselves habitual um, to the extent that whenever you're presented with an idea uh, when it, uh, related to something, if you have a kind of already have an emotional kind of reaction to that thing, the habit can get formed where you're always reacting to the same thing in the same way. So with anger, with fear, with frustration, uh, with um, vitriol, with whatever kind of negativity or positivity. Um, and that can really disrupt or, um, or alter or affect the decision-making process, the communicative process generally, the process of persuasion more specifically. 
etc. So I try and teach my students to ask a couple of important questions in any given situation. So if they enter a professional, personal, whatever situation, I, I tell them, ask yourself, how, what is this person feeling? How might I be able to label it? And then ask, how might that feeling affect their judgment, their reception, their reaction to me and to what I have to say? And those are important questions. And they have to be followed by the third question, which is, how do I adjust what I have to say in order to amplify, diminish, or change the emotions that the person I'm dealing with or the people I'm dealing with are experiencing. If they're frustrated, how do I get them feeling less frustrated so that then we can then talk about the thing that's frustrating them? If they're angry, how do I get them to feel less angry? If they're too calm, how do I get them to feel excited or engaged? Uh, if they're feeling sad, how do I get them feeling upbeat or are happier or optimistic about what's going on? So. I have, to, I have to label the emotion or identify it in some way. I have to ask how it might influence that person's reaction or judgment or decision-making or responsiveness to a particular situation, to a particular claim that I'm trying to make. And then I have to figure out how I can adjust strategically my message, my communicative practices, so that I can change, amplify, or diminish the emotions of the, of the audience I'm dealing with. Um, those three questions are always on the mind, I think, of master communicators. They always have this awareness that those three things have to be dealt with uh, in some important ways. And I wonder sometimes what kind of transformative work would happen in our local circumstances if those three questions were on the minds of a lot more people. Because what I find is that those three questions are almost never on the mind of anyone. Uh, in professional circumstances, in uh, personal circumstances, I find it very, very rare that uh, that a hum uh, any person is able to even think those three questions. Uh, all too often, people want to think only about what they have to say, how right that thing is, their perspective on the world, how they're going to articulate their perspective, what they're going to say next, how what they're saying is the right thing to be saying. They're not attending to uh, the project of identifying even the emotional state of the audience, uh, the project of thinking about how that emotional state might bias the reasoning, might bias their reasoning, uh, and how they might adjust or change their communicative, the, the structure of their communicative actions, and the content of their communicative actions in order to accommodate or respond to uh, those that particular emotional state of the audience. So I find this to be an extraordinarily rare trait um, or rare ability for people. I think that especially in terms of leadership positions, it's kind of, uh, it's unfortunately kind of ignored when people think about uh, leaders they think uh, charisma, they think uh, good decision, you know, they think, you know, someone that makes good decisions, makes them with their gut, has this kind of like powerful presence. But really good leadership is more about doing those three things than anything, because if you're doing those three things, you're improving the possibility that you'll be persuasive or that you'll be able to influence courses of action. And of course, what the one thing I'm, I'm sort of maybe only just hinting at, but is absolutely true, is that the effect of doing those three things 
is a better relationship with the person with whom you're communicating because that person will be appreciative of your responsiveness to their emotional state. Just responding and attending in important ways can transform the interaction. Um, so master communicators know that emotion always biases reason and they put questions about how to address the emotions of the audience uh, at the center of their communicative interactions. And that has a great influence on their ability to, uh, to manage different kinds of communication situations. Okay, so that's it for this episode. I'll be back in the next episode to talk about uh, a couple of practices that are common that we should avoid as master communicators. Okay, thanks everyone for listening.